Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Well, today is uh, Super Bowl Sunday, and I remember launching Vail Christian Church on Super Bowl Sunday, and about three months before we launched, that's when I realized that we were launching on Super Bowl Sunday, and I felt like I made a terrible mistake. And we considered and wrestled around and talked about it over and over again. Maybe we should not do it. And it's funny, um, it's funny how, actually, hey, Jared, um, would you take this down? Thank you. I'm swapping cups out. Um, it's funny how we thought it was a bad thing to launch a church on Super Bowl Sunday. It sounds ridiculous now. You know, the more I think about it, I mean, look, it's a big day and there's a lot going on and there's a lot of people that are going to build their day around it. But why should the church build our day around it, right? I mean, you can still go, we can still watch it. I'm still going to enjoy it. I'm mostly going to enjoy the guacamole, right? And the cheese and the hot wings and the whatever else is there. I'm mostly going to enjoy all that kind of stuff. I'll watch the game. Probably, I'll probably be upset at what happens at the halftime show. I always am, right? And I was reading, it's so great that you can read articles about interviews now, about Maroon 5 and some sort of thing they're going to do that's supposed to be an answer to sort of the political kind of garbage that goes on in our world, you know, around the anthem and the flag and all that baloney. So they're going to do something, and I'm certain I'm going to be disappointed and go, ah, right? You know, and I, I'm, I'm just going to be bummed at it. But that's not, but I mean, I'm, uh, we're here for other things, right? I'm not going to be uh, uh, bummed and brought to my knees over something silly, right? And today, I want to talk about this on, on our anniversary Sunday. We're going to open up Mark chapter 11. It's, I think it's my favorite chapter and maybe set of verses in the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 11, we're going to start at verse 12. Make sure you get your Bible out, guys. Come on, you got to do it because, yeah, way to go. All right, you're going to want to see this for yourself. Jesus does some things in here that um, sort of set you back that, that, that I think are... You know, he's, he's pretty well known for being shocking. But man, today, this is a scene where he gets really upset, okay? And um, it's, he gets angry. He's enraged. Now, we've seen him get like this a little bit. It doesn't happen often, but when he does, it's appropriate and it's good. And so I want you to take note of what he gets enraged about. <coughs> These are things that we need to pay attention to, and that's where all the lessons are. Last time he got enraged, remember he got all fired up? He was indignant because the disciples were shooing the children away. And the, you know, the heartbeat of what that is, is Jesus was saying, listen, this is how you come to faith in Christ. It's a childlike faith, right? So don't do that because this is, this is how we're supposed to come to Christ. And it's a, it's a model that children were a teaching aid and a real lesson to us about coming to faith in Christ. So he, he was really mad that people were trying to thwart that, all right? And he brought all those kids around him and then he blessed them. 
he gets really upset at something here too. That's very important. Because in this scene, okay, this is where he abolishes the old system, the old way, and he, he begins to usher in the new way. And there's some things getting in the way, okay? So he's upset at how um, it's all happening. And, and I think there's lessons for the church. He's pretty upset at church people, <laughs> all right? There's the, the Jewish community of believers and everything. They, they believe everything's built around them. And, and that's the way God has designed it, but they, get, they got it all warped and it's corrupt and there's all kinds of messes. And there are the Gentiles then that are kind of caught in the middle and that's what he gets upset at. So we've reached this place in chapter 11. It's the climactic triumphant entrance into Jerusalem, right? Okay, so let's start at verse 12. We'll read it and then we'll kind of unpack it together and then you can go to the Super Bowl and eat Don't go on a diet today. Eat everything, okay? It's going to be a good day. Starting at verse 12, so the next day, so he's already gotten in there, right? He's been in the temple and back, back to spend the night outside of Jerusalem. So now here we are. The next day, as they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus gets hungry. But this is different. After noticing in the distance a fig tree with leaves... He went to see if he could find any fruit on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't know that it's not the season for figs. Mark is just pointing out all the facts right here because it's important in this story. So he said to it, so Jesus is talking to the tree, (laughs) may no one ever eat fruit from you again. That's crazy. He gets mad at the tree and he curses it. I mean, this is crazy. And then his disciples hear it. Mark points that out. Now, we'll get to that. But the disciples are like, whoa, Jesus fired up at the tree. What is happening? And this happens periodically where Jesus does something crazy. And it's like taking them by surprise. But this time, they're kind of like, maybe there's a lesson. Right? So they're paying attention. They're spiritually actually being sensitive right here. What is Jesus doing? Kind of thing. Okay, now, let's keep going. Uh, then they came to Jerusalem. So Jesus entered the temple area, and when he began to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts, he turned over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he would not permit anyone to carry uh, merchandise through the temple courts. So Mark's account doesn't quite let you know that Jesus is indignant, he's angry, he's enraged, but he is really, really mad. In fact, I think he's as mad as it gets right here. This is as mad as he ever gets, right here. Because he, you got to be mad to drive all these people out of here. There's a lot of folks and a lot of stuff, and they're all afraid for their life, and they run, okay? So, verse 17, then he began to teach them. So, <laughs> that's a great way, you know, he gets all mad and everything, and then he starts teaching them. <laughs> That's just, only Jesus could pull that off. Is it not written? Maybe he's angry teaching. I don't know. Is it not written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests, and that's, this is why you know he's angry. The chief priests 
in the law or the experts in the law. They heard it and they considered how they could assassinate him. You got to be mad to want to assassinate somebody. I don't know that I've ever wanted to do assassinate somebody. I mean, I've wanted to punch somebody before, but assassinate? This is mad. This is anger. This is bitterness, okay? For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed by his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Well, yeah, because they can't stay in there because people want to kill me, right? So verse 20, in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. <laughs> so of course, Peter, he remembered, and he says to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, you curse, it's all withered. And Jesus said to him, have faith in God. I'll tell you the truth. Now remember, every time Jesus says something like that, it's like he's grabbing you by the face. I tell you the truth, listen, pay attention, something good's coming. This is something you need to know, right? <clears throat> so he says, I tell you the truth, whatever you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it'll be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your sins. And if you pay attention, you'll realize that there's no verse 26 if you're reading from the New English translation, the Net Bible. Some of your versions include a verse 26, but it should not be there. It's added on. It's not from the original text. It's been added in there. And so the Net Bible says, no, we're not doing that, okay? Which is why I like the Net Bible. And I don't think, it doesn't hurt anything for it to be in there, but it's not actually original and it's not included, okay? You can study that on your own all you want, but if you have the Net Bible, it'll, it'll uh, give you some notes and some clues to that. So now, here all this whole scene. So previous, last week, Jesus comes in, he's all humble, and he's on the donkey, the, um, you know, kind of in a humble way, right? And he goes to the temple, even though not being invited and escorted around, he goes there and then he goes away, he goes, goes on. But now, Everything's different. And there's three scenes here, and they seem like they're disconnected, but they're all connected, these scenes, right? The fig tree thing, then he gets fired up at the, the Gentile court. And then later, there's this moving mountains kind of thing, and, and it returns back to the fig tree, and there's some lessons. And it's all interconnected. It's actually really tightly connected, all right? And all the lessons are really important. So I'll try to move through them. Um, in, a, in a way that brings it all together. But let's just be reminded through some pictures of what's kind of happening. Because I think it's good when you look at the Temple Mount, when you look at Jerusalem and the old city, you see, you can see it right there in the middle left, right? That's the old city and the temple's in there because you can see the walls built around it. And this is an aerial view from uh, across the Kidron Valley, right? Keep going. Um, the Kidron Valley, you know, see the, 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 the streets down there and below that and everything. It's actually a, some great topography. I'm just trying to help you see that Jesus is having to go up and down through this valley right here. See, it's quite a little trek back up and down and across, okay? And uh, it's pretty good. And then uh, this map gives you a good idea. And I want you to pay attention to this map because... There you can see the Temple Mount. You can see the walls in red right there. And it looks like a rectangle that's not quite squared, all right? 
It looks like it's out of, out of whack just a little bit, but it's just designed around the geography, right? And right there in the very center, that's the temple, and there's the court of the Jews, and then the, the uh, Holy of Holies. It's all right there, and then the, you see it says Court of the Gentiles. That's where he gets mad. That's actually a really large area. There's a lot of people, and a lot of commerce, and a lot of stuff taking place right there, Okay. So you can see, you know, there's a little squiggly line there, that road that goes up and it says Gethsemane and this is Mount of Olives. So this is where Jesus is going back and forth and through there, okay? And that fig tree was in there somewhere. Well, it's not there anymore. It shriveled up and died, right? But that's where it was, okay? So there's some implications of this day that give the disciples a key or the key to unleashing heavenly forces that are able to remove insurmountable obstacles to the kingdom of God. And that's why Jesus is pretty uptight. There's a lot of things out there that seem or that just seem like they're almost overwhelming, right? That how are we gonna solve this? This issue's too big. It's too, too great. This is why I think a lot of young people go, oh, I don't need to vote. My vote's not gonna count. Because we feel like, sorry, I'm just, it's better if I use a cleanness. <laughs> we feel like um, we're not going to make a difference. Like, we're, we, you know, like it's just overwhelming. What can one vote do, right? So then we go, ah, we're not going to vote. This is a lesson to help these guys understand, right? Some things. So here's the first thing. He curses the fig tree. Now, um, it seems odd. What's this got to do with anything? So he leaves from Bethany for Jerusalem. He's hungry. In the distance, he sees the fig tree and it's full of leaves. That's key. Full of leaves. Hoping to find some fruit to eat, he makes his way to the tree. He's not expecting, I mean, Jesus is God here and he's smart. He's not expecting to find mature fruit on it because it's not the season for figs. So this is all that Mark is pointing out. It's not fig season. So he's not expecting to find fruit on it um, like you might think. <clears throat> Sometimes figs grow early or they're left over on old branches or they grow early on old branches. When you prune, that's what it means by old branches, right? So I got a lemon tree in my backyard and um, it's pretty awesome, but there's some there's some fruit still on it, even though it's in, um, you know, Tucson's not a great place to grow citrus fruit, but uh, normally you'd pick them around December, right? The lemons. Well, lemon tree doesn't hardly know what to do in Tucson this year. You know, it's already blossomed. It usually blossoms in the spring. Well, my lemon tree's already blossoming and it's got fruit on it and it's got new fruit on it. It's like, it doesn't know what to do. Well, there, there's a little bit of, you know, so, so we know this happens sometimes, right? We know these kinds of things happen. So you could kind of go through that scenario. But here's the thing, all right? Um, there is a season, right, where the figs get ripe. They grow on new branches and they ripen in August and October, actually, in Jerusalem. So Jesus could hope to only find buds which form just before uh, the, the trees kind of really get out in full leaf, all right? And at maturity, early figs are good, but 
but buds are marginally edible. So all of this is going on. What is he doing? Jesus is looking for small, but edible. They're not going to taste that great, but edible buds that were a sign of future fruit. That's what he's looking for. He is hungry, but he's looking for, don't get too hung up on that. He's looking for signs that this tree is going to produce future fruit. But he finds nothing. No buds, only leaves. No buds now means no fruit in June or afterwards or in the future. Nothing. That's why he's all mad. <laughs> now, hang on to that for a minute, okay? Because this tree is not doing what it's supposed to do. That's the point. It looks like it should have fruit, but it doesn't. It's deceptive. So Jesus responds by delivering a curse that awakens the ears of the disciples. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. It's like, what? So Mark adds the comment, right? His, his disciples heard it. So it's like his disciples kind of go, all right, something going on here. Jesus is all mad about this tree. And so there's got to be something happening. What, it, what he's trying to point out is that they're spiritually sensitive. They've had enough lessons where they've kind of taken it in the teeth quite a bit where Jesus is like, you guys don't seem to get it to where they're like, okay, what's happening? The fig tree, the fruit, Jesus is hungry. I don't think he's just hangry. It's something's going on here. And they're spiritually being sensitive. This is the first time they're finally going, okay, let's pay attention Unlike all the other occasions where they're, you know, they're actually listening to what Jesus is doing and their eyes are open. So this curse means something, all right? And so, by the way, Bethpage means, uh, you know, which is where he's coming from and through or passing through means uh, the house of unripe figs. <laughs> I think that's pretty awesome. So they've gone through the Kidron Valley past Gethsemane, to Jerusalem. There's why I put up the map. So let's focus on the cleansing of the court of the Gentiles, Gentiles, the Gentile court, verses 15 through 19, in particular 15 and 16. So then they come to Jerusalem and he enters the temple area and he begins to drive out those who are selling and buying in the temple courts. He turned over the tables of money changers, the chairs of those selling doves, and he wouldn't permit anybody to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He's really upset. His disciples arrive in the temple area known as the court of the Gentiles. So go back to the map. All right, you see it there? It's big, the Gentile court. So the, there's a court of the women and then the court of the Jews. Everything's got a purpose around here for the sacrificial system. Remember, people are on a pilgrimage to come celebrate Passover and then sacrifice animals, all these kinds of things. So there's an order to things, there's a system to things, all right? And worship is to take place here and, and the Gentiles are supposed to be able to worship in the Gentile court, okay? So there's a place for everything. So what is happening then? The place specifically designed for worship by God-fearing Gentiles is all clogged up by stuff. Now, maybe it was well-intentioned at first, all right? Maybe. 
But let's just take a look at Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7. Isaiah is God's mouthpiece. He's a prophet in the Old Testament of God. And this is God's idea of what's supposed to happen here in the, in the, in the, in the future, right? What's supposed to be happening right now in the time of Jesus in the Gentile court. Isaiah 56, verses 6 and 7 says, as for foreigners who come, or foreigners who become followers of the Lord, these are Gentiles, and serve him, who love him, and who love the name of the Lord, and want to be his servants, all who observe the Sabbath and do not defile it, and who are faithful to my covenant, I will bring them to my holy mountain, that's where, the, where they are, that's the holy mountain, right? Zion, Jerusalem, the temple, all this stuff, I will make them happy in the temple where people pray to me. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. This is for everybody. So Isaiah saw a time when this outer court of the Gentiles will become as holy as the inner court of the Jews where everybody could worship. But Jesus finds the outer court overrun with commercialism and traffic and noise and the commerce which seems uh, innocent enough is designed to be helpful, not a hindrance to the pilgrims and, uh, that are on their way to worship. So this is what's happening, all right? So uh, the, the, the church guys, the wise guys, the Pharisees, all right? And lots of people realize people are on this long trek to get there to worship. And you're to bring a specific sacrifice that's clean and pure. Well, that's a long ways to bring it. So what do they do? They set up shop. Well, this, we got one right here. All you got to do is buy it. All right? And in order to buy it, and there's a temple tax. Well, what if you're poor? Well, we'll provide doves for you because they're a lot less expensive, even though we're going to jack the price up. So you can buy a dove. All right? Or you can buy uh, another animal that's acceptable, right? Because there's going to be the, the temple police, the, per, the, the priests that are going to decide whether or not your sacrifice is acceptable or not, or pure, or clean, or right, right? And you wouldn't want to drag, you know, this animal, this whole trek, and then you get there and they're like, nope, it's not good enough, All right? So they got, a, they got a system here. And there's a temple tax, and it's got to be paid in the right currency. So we'll exchange your money so you can have the right currency. Of course, you know, there's an exchange rate, right? So this is big business. They're jacking up the price, the temple tax. They're taking advantage of people, and they're taking advantage of poor people. The whole thing is the, to come and to worship the Lord, but these people are making money off of it. Oh my gosh, Jesus is beside himself. He is enraged at this whole thing. Plus, there's something else going on. Now, you know what's going on over the other side of that door over there is the classroom. This building's designed a certain way, all right? It may not be designed the right way, but it's designed a certain way. It's okay, all right? And that room over there is, we call it the amphitheater room. And then there's a little, little teeny room right there. It's the snack bar, okay? But the way this is designed is so that those doors, that little snack bar door would be locked and so you could be in that room and then what would happen is instead of passing through the snack bar, which you don't want to do, right, it's designed to where you go out those doors and then you could go around and, and then the restroom lobby, you could go in there, use the restroom and then there's some doors right there that would be locked so you couldn't come in and interrupt the service or if you had 
if, if this room was being used during the week or something like that, that room could be used and then you could get to the restroom and this whole room wouldn't be compromised. And all the equipment and everything and air conditioning and all that wouldn't, you know, so that's the way it's designed. Good or bad, it doesn't matter. That's the way it's designed. But you know what people do? They don't pay attention to the way it's designed and the little snack bar thing becomes a shortcut little thoroughfare to get to the restroom. Poor design. I don't know who did that. But it was me. Okay. I don't know. I thought the snack bar would be great. It is awesome. But everybody wants to cut through there. Well, it's just this little teeny room, and then it, but both doors are like banging and on and on, and you know, and it's just this thoroughfare, and it, you know, it's just a mess sometimes. All right. And, uh, and I get it. I totally get it. it. Doesn't, you know, who cares? But there's a design. All right. So there's a design here for the temple courts. It's kind of crazy. And people are using the Gentile court as a shortcut, all right? And, and for all kinds of things that it was not designed by God for. In particular, for God-fearing Gentiles to worship in. But they can't do it because it's like this big bazaar of trade and commerce, which is taken advantage. It's just crazy how corrupt it is. The whole idea is for people to worship there, but it's being exploited and really messed up, and Jesus is beside himself. The location where these entrepreneurs chose to set up shop is the only place the Gentiles had to worship. This is not cool. So Jesus is enraged at the site, and without warning, he takes complete control over the scenario and he ferociously exercises his authority and power. And everybody is like, man. All right? And, and, and the, so the contrast between the way the Jews see this and their attitude and the, Gent uh, the Gentile court and the attitude of Jesus, it couldn't be sharper. It's like opposite. The Jews are viewing this court as like inconsequential. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You know, what's the big deal? It's, a, it's, it's appropriate to set up this stuff. I mean, we're trying to help out these people, you know, so they can come and worship. <laughs> it's so dumb. But Jesus sees this as holy ground and it shouldn't be violated. You're impeding God-fearing Gentiles are at least the opportunity for them to worship the Lord. You're getting in the way. And nothing makes Jesus more upset than that. Than getting in the way and causing folks, or, or taking the ability, of, uh, uh, um, the ability for people to connect and meet with the Lord. I mean, can you see why he's really mad? And here this, here's the thing. I, I, I cannot stress to you how mad he actually is over this. So, just as a little side note thing here, because I don't want to get too far down this road, but when is it appropriate for Christ followers to be upset like this? When is it appropriate? Are there times when we should exercise force in a way as a Christ follower to become angry and enraged over things? I think there's a time, and I think it's happened, honestly, I think it's been right in our face over this last two or three weeks. It's, 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 I'm beside myself at the governor of New York, at the governor of Virginia, 
when, uh, when, when our country, when our world is sitting around here listening to these insane people decide at, at the, in, in the third trimester of a baby, at full term, a baby can be crowning in, uh, from the mother's womb and a doctor is permitted legally to inject poison into the skull of an infant and kill the infant right there or outside of the womb. If this isn't a time to be angry as Christ followers, I don't know when it is because it's utterly insane that, 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 that we live in a world where we're allowing this to, 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 to happen. I think God is, his heart is broken and I think if Jesus was here, he would, he would be beside himself about those kinds of things. When is it appropriate? It is appropriate when people are in that vulnerable state. Pastor Matt um, Miller and I were talking about uh, the testimony of uh, a, a young woman who had had a uh, an abortion, and she was talking about men and women and God's design, and I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was powerful the way it was being described, her testimony about how men and women were designed by God. And there's only one place in God's design from both men and women that is in the human body that is not designed for you. And it's the womb. And, and the woman is uh, privileged to uh, have that design built into her body, but it's not designed for you. It's designed for somebody else. It's the only place amongst men and women designed by God that is not for you. Don't let the world tell you any different because it's not true. The womb is not for you. It's for a human being. It's designed and it is appropriate to become angry and exercise, I think, force as a Christ follower in these times. I think it's time for Christ followers to sit up and pay attention. And Jesus' actions here had tremendous implications for the messianic claims that he's incited over, right? In Old Testament temple, the cleansing could be done and was the sole prerogative of the king. And here Jesus seizes that role as if it were his by divine right. And his actions were a slap in the face to the existing high priest since all this commercial activity was taking place under his authorization. If Jesus' actions were not insulting enough, he takes on the role of a prophet preaching in the manner of Jeremiah. And if you unpack that, where Jeremiah declared himself to be both king and high priest... That's what Jesus is doing who presided over the temple and the worship of God. That's what he does right here and this is why he's mad. <laughs> so this second little point here is that he, he is forceful and he is authoritative in his teaching in verse 17. So he began to teach them and he said, is it not written my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations but you've turned it into a den of robbers? So Jesus' words are quoted right out of Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, 11. And, and this is nothing new, but he applies them with a fresh force on this occasion. God had designed the temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, but as in the days of Jeremiah, the Jewish leadership had made it a haven for robbers. And people are being robbed of the opportunity to worship. And so this is pretty explosive. And it provokes an angry response in verses 18 and 19. The chief priests and the scribes, they hear this and they're like, we got to figure out a way to assassinate this guy. 
So Jerusalem becomes too dangerous of a place for Jesus to spend the night. So he and his disciples make it their habit to go back and forth to Bethany each evening for safe lodging. And that's what they do on this occasion. So here comes the lessons on prayer from the fig tree now. Verses 20 through 26, or through 25, right? So the fig tree withered. So they're passing by in the morning. They see the fig tree. And of course, Peter says, hey, there's that tree, right? And it's, it's dried up from the roots on up, from the very foundation all the way to the top. And it's never going to come back or be revived. So Peter is perceptive and he points out this fact to Jesus and Jesus uses the tree as a parable now to teach the disciples about removing obstacles in the kingdom. Here's where all the lessons are powerful. So now you can understand the connection between the fig tree, which Jesus has cursed, and the temple. In the Hebrew scriptures, the fig tree is a well-known symbol for the nation of Israel. The tree's full in, uh, the tree was fully in leaf, lots of leaves, but it didn't have any fruit. So too is the nation of Israel. Its spiritual center, the temple, full of religious activity, but it doesn't have any fruit. It bears no fruit. This made the temple ripe for judgment. And like the tree, it would never be revived. So here it comes. Both the temple and the sacrificial system, they're finished. And Jesus is going to build a new thing, a new way, something new, a new temple. So now, here's the temple. Here's where he chooses to dwell. Here's the temple that he builds, right? Right here. Not the building, not the stuff, not the, all, that, all those things. So he begins to talk through verses 22 through 23 about a mountain cast into the sea. Well, what's he talking about there? Having faith in God, he says, whoever you know, says to this mountain, you know, be cast into the sea, and you don't have any doubt in your heart, and you believe it's going to happen. It's going to be granted. So bearing in mind the context of the prophets, as he's teaching these people, right, you can get your arms around the implications of what he's saying. The prophets saw a day when all the obstacles to worship would be removed from among the nations. Mountains would be brought low, valleys would be lifted up, and all the nations would, become, would come to worship the Lord. It's a feature of the Messianic age. All the obstacles uh, uh, to God's returning people would be removed, particularly mountains and this mess that's going on with the temple. In that context, Jesus tells us his disciples to have faith. With faith, they can, uh, anything can happen and all these promises can come true because the time's arrived, he's saying. So the moving of the mountains expected in the last days, it's taking place, okay? Through faith and believing prayer, they could remove all this stuff, preventing the nations from true worship of Yahweh. Not only would they be moved, they'd be cast in the sea, they'd be destroyed, it's the same language which Mark used when Jesus was casting out demons. But when, but, but then with sort of poignant irony, we're stunned to learn exactly what was the insurmountable object 
or obstacle to worldwide worship. What is it? It was in Jesus' words, this mountain, Zion, the very temple mount itself. So corrupted, it became so corrupt, rather than helping the nation's worship, it had grown to be the main obstacle to worship. You know what is the main obstacle to worship today? What do you think it is? Man, people struggle with the church. They just struggle, right? We get in the way most of the time. We get in the way all the time. So Jesus tells his disciples, if you have faith, you can, you can move this mountain. It can be taken, it can be cast in the sea. You don't have to doubt it in their hearts. Believing prayer can accomplish the impossible. So now Jerusalem is to be cleansed of its demons and its temple, cast into the sea, not by force, but by believing prayer. So he goes on to make their faith even more radical. Verses 24 and 25, right? For this reason, I tell you, whatever you pray and ask for and believe, you'll have received it and it'll be yours. Whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him so that your father in heaven will also forgive you your sins. So look at this. I think this is huge. He applies this principle of believing prayer across the board, applying it to all things that we ask. This is where we find the new temple of God being built, not in stone tap, not in stone, or, but, in, but on human hearts right here. Whenever you stand praying, right? The phrase, whenever you stand praying, forgive, it's a clear reference to 1 Kings 8 when Solomon dedicated the first temple. On that holy occasion, the king stood in front of the altar in the presence of all the people, lifting his hands in heaven, uttering a lengthy prayer of dedication. He, he thanked God and that he had fulfilled his covenant to grant David a, a seed to sit on his throne and, and then explained that the primary purpose of this temple was to be that of a house of prayer. Then he listed all kinds of things that needed to be prayed for. And he said, forgive the sins of your people because forgiveness changes everything. It's the most powerful thing that you can do is forgive. We are most like God when we forgive, when we're just forgiving because we come to, because we're emptied of ourselves. Do you know how Paul really came to Christ? When Stephen was being stoned, Paul was overseeing that. His name was Saul at the time, right? He was persecuting Christians. The guy who, who's written 60% of the New Testament, you know, he's running around killing Christians like crazy and persecuting the church. He's at this scene where Stephen is being stoned and he's overseeing it. And what does Stephen say as he's being stoned? He's basically, <clears throat> heavens open up and he says, Lord God, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. And that's what changed Paul right there. That's why you see Paul Totally transformed right there. And God gets a hold, Jesus gets a hold of him. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's, he's taken on the sin of the world and he's been unjustly beaten and just, it, just treated as, as ho most horribly as, as you could be treated, crucified, what does he say? Right there at the very end. Lord God, Lord God. 
forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's all about forgiveness changes everything. The greatest promise and the greatest obstacle of all is right here. This is where we find the new temple of God being built in our hearts. So now Jesus, the new son of David, speaking to the disciples, standing in prayer before the new temple, one to be built not out of stones, but on human hearts, Jesus warns them, the greatest obstacle to the nations of coming to the kingdom is not going to be Gentile hostility, but their own lack of forgiveness. That's what he's teaching them right here. Before they go to God, you're told to forgive others. A hard and unforgiving heart is a mountain that needs to be removed before revival and change can really happen. And it can be removed only by believing prayer. Look at what's important to him. If the disciples are slowly figuring this out, this radical statement about the power of forgiveness, they're going to they're gonna soon get a good glimpse of it because Jesus is about to be their king. He's about to be crucified. And hanging from the cross with outstretched arms, he cries out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So there's four things I think we can pick up here that we can learn, that we can do, that we can be intentional about. I think that the, the thrust of the scripture right here establishes a sharp, a sharp contrast to the Gentile demeanor of Jesus, which we observed in the last, at, the, at the last time, right? These verses center on his passionate concern for the world. So I think we need to be concerned for the world. I think that everything leaves us with the powerful implications about what we need to do regarding the, our actions in our own lives and how they affect the world. And the first one is be discerning. We have to be discerning. Look for fruit. Are you producing fruit? God is all about fruit. He wants fruit. He wants to see that there's potential for fruit, at least. Fruit. We do lots of stuff. We do lots of things that doesn't produce any fruit. And, and it's all counterproductive to the purposes of the kingdom. It requires sacrifice and work, and you have to adjust your lives. But think about how many things are you doing that's producing nothing? And I'm right in there. <laughs> how much stuff is important to you produces nothing? I think this is where you marshal discernment. If there's anything that, you, that can be described in your life as, as, as fruitless, then get out the pruning shears and prune, maybe even lop off whole branches so that you can bear fruit because pruning produces fruit. It just does. It's painful, but it's better to prune it than to have the whole tree shrivel up and die and be, you understand? How about take control? I think there's a physical aspect here, but the only time Jesus got violently angry in the gospels is when holy space for Gentiles was overrun and desecrated. We say on that sign, and I mean it, and I, I expect you to mean it, we say, we've saved a seat for you. The vision of Vail Christian Church is very intentional about making room. If you're not making room, if we're just saying we're saving a seat, we're not talking about chairs. We're talking about space for people to come and be invited into our midst and figure it out and, and experience um, uh, in the midst of our worship and our love for God, uh, really 
they should be able to see us practicing uh, the gospel, practicing resurrection, practicing what we believe. We're either just talking about it or we're doing it. There's so many great Super Bowl parties today and it's gonna be fun. It should be awesome. I hope you're going to one. I hope people are coming to your house. But remember this, right? This, this, this is the place where you invite all these folks that are kind of got questions and don't quite get it. They should be invited into your midst in those parties and stuff. They really should. That's what, that's what we should be doing. Make sure that, that, that in the future, that's how we practice it. We're using the discernment and we're taking control. Here comes the next one. We have faith, you know? Don't be intimidated by what's going on in our world. The government can try to do whatever they want. They can take prayer to schools and they can decide all kinds of stuff and they can pass legislation to murder babies if they want. But don't be intimidated by that, all right? They, they, they can try all they want, but it can't be done, right? The, the, the more you oppose prayer, the more, you, uh, uh, the more dependent on prayer we become. Prayer is the most important activity that you can engage with, uh, with non-believers or not. You know, um, I, I, I worked for a pastor in San Jose for so long. He was such a good, good guy. And the, the, the thing that I took away from Pastor Cook more than anything ever is that you could not get away from him ever without him praying for you before you left. I don't care if it was just, hello, how you doing? What's going on? He would say, hello, you know, Ben, is everything going okay? Are you taking care of your wife? Blah, 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 blah. And I would be ready to walk away and he would go, he would grab a hold of me and goes, let me pray for you really quick. He put his hand on me and he's like, you know, he would just preach, preach prayer, all kinds of stuff. He's like, Lord, make sure Pastor Ben loves his wife like everything, you know, like he should. He would, he just, I, you couldn't get away. I don't care what you talk to him about. When you left his presence, he would pray, pray with you before you left. If you introduce somebody to him, that was what was so cool. You could introduce just anybody to him and he would be interested. He would talk with you, he'd whatever, and then he'd, he wouldn't let you go. And they'd say, well, let me pray for you before you go. It was so awesome. Why? Because prayer changes everything, man. If you have faith, it re it'll remove any obstacle. And here's the last thing, the most powerful thing at all, be forgiving. Be forgiving. Forgiveness is just huge. I already talked about Stephen. I already talked about the cross. Everybody who witnessed what happened with Stephen would say it was worth it, everybody. Why? Because of what was so powerful, what, what took place um, just in those moments. Forgiveness moves the greatest mountains on earth. Pray that the Lord would lead us in that way. Let's pray together. Lord, there's some good stuff that's gonna happen today. It's gonna be fun. I, I, I hope it's awesome. But help us take away some really amazing things, Lord, from this. There's some really powerful lessons that we all need. Help us to be discerning, to take control when it's appropriate in particular to have faith and be forgiving, Lord God. Thank you for the passion of your son, Jesus. I'm motivated by his love 
not wanting anything to get in the way of the Gentiles and worshiping you. Help us to be a church over this next 13 years that's aggressively invading the community with love and forgiveness and care and overwhelming faith and discernment. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Have a great day, you guys. I hope you eat so much guacamole, you're just like, man, I don't want any more of that for a long time.